Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Mind Valley podcast. This is Vishen Lakiani, and today is the legendary Jamie Wheel. Executive Director at the Flow Genome Project. So get this about Jamie because this guy's resume is like a work of art. He is the co-founder of the Flow Genome Project, co-author of the Pulitzer-nominated global bestseller, Stealing Fire, one of the best books I read last year. Now, let me give you an idea of how influential this book was. After reading this book, I created an entire A-Fest on the concept of altered states. Jamie's co-author on the book, Stephen Kotler, was one of our speakers, along with people like Wim Hof and so on. That book introduced me to Jason Silva, who just spoke at the last day fest in Bali. So, you know, I love it when I pick up a book and all of a sudden it's opening my mind to these entirely new ways of viewing the world where I'm actually putting on seminars, connecting with people, because that book touched me in a deep way. Jamie has advised everyone from U.S. Naval War College and Special Operations Command, the athletes of Red Bull, the owners of the NFL and NBA, MLB, Premier League. His works and ideas have been covered in the New York Times in an article called How to Hack Your Brain, the Financial Times, Wired, that article in Wired, you got to check it out. It's called Inside Silicon Valley's New Non-Religion consciousness hacking. He's been in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Inc., and TEDx. So Jamie, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. So your brain is an encyclopedia of knowledge, and there are so many different directions we can take this interview, right? But let's start with a really fascinating concept that's been a matter of debate lately here in the Mind Valley community, and that is hard work versus flow. So Many people who are listening to this podcast may have watched my Impact Theory episode with Tom Bilyeu, right? And me and Tom, I love Tom, but Tom is the king of hustle. He's in the Gary V camp, for sure. Yes, yes, Gary V too. And both are incredible guys. I just spoke with Gary V in Sharjah, and I love them both. But I don't completely buy the idea of hustle and hard work. I cap my working hours. I practice meditation as a way to get productive. And you, as the master of altered states and flow, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, the short answer is it's both and neither. And it's managing the polarity between the two. Like the old Zen saying, like effortless effort is the thing we're shooting for, right? That's grace, flow, whatever you want to call it. But effortless effort takes a fuck ton of work to paraphrase Suzuki Roshi, right? So there's always that, right? The idea that like a surfer, if you think of, you know, the metaphor of the surfer on the wave is actually the flowy part, right? That's the part where force of nature energy picks you up and you're literally dancing on top of the water and then the wave goes away. And then what do you do? Well, you have to paddle back out. You're in the shore break. So it actually requires skill and you're going against resistance. But if you're smart, you realize, oh, there's a rip current. It's actually just a conveyor belt going back out into the ocean. If I ride that, so once again, getting back into the flow, even in the midst of struggle, right, I'm expending less energy. Then I get it back out to the lineup where the swells start setting up on the outside reef and a couple of quick, hard digs and strokes, and I'm back up on my board in actual flow again. But the more efficient, like the Kelly Slaters of the world, they can navigate all the non-flowy parts of that cycle as fluidly as possible, have more energy, more focus, and more attention so that when it is time to hit the drop, 
and it is time to rip one off the lip, right? That's when they're poised and focused. So like that's one kind of dissolving of the binaries, like if striving versus releasing as a Cohen to be solved. But there's also another one, because you mentioned Tom and Gary and just thinking about those guys. There's also a, interestingly, you're, we're talking about states here, but actually the key to unlocking the differential between your stance and their stance is also about stages. So for different adult developmental stages, there are different prime directives, as it were. It's a bastardized concept at this point, but this is kind of an entry point in developmental theory, which is spiral dynamics. So with a bunch of caveats, I'll go through and play through anyway, which is that the level of orange, which is the classic kind of like strive, jive, meritocratic, go get your shit, the best man wins, that kind of software, that you're running, then grind it out, hustle, outwork the other guy is the very natural expression of that value system, right? Now you go one level up and it's much more about going along to get along, hearing and being heard. It's why hippies don't build a lot of shit, right? You're sitting around in painful consensus circles, right? Making sure everybody's heard, even if they don't actually deserve to be heard, right? And that's the level there, which is everyone's included. But the level that I think you're starting to feel into is a level or two above that. And that is where you start living the reconciliation of opposites. There is no longer a rigidly identified I to do the striving and the achieving. There's a sense of interconnectedness. There's a sense of serendipity and non-linear vectors of energy that you're mapping and modeling in real time and far better. And then, then you get into the Taoist master kind of thing, like where it was a scouting party for the emperor. They see this old man fall, you know, quote unquote, off the cliff into the waterfall. They go down and find him and he's still fucking alive after like a 200 foot drop. And they're like, how old man did you survive that drop? That would have killed anybody. So that it was very easy. He said, when the water went down, I went with it. And when it came up, I came up also, right? And so that, in some respects, is, you know, a paraphrase of your stance. And without blowing sunshine up your ass, you could say that that is a more complex, developmentally informed perspective on the nature of things. And you're kind of coming a full circle back around to Uwei, you know, the Taoist concept of effortless effort. So I love what you just said, the Taoist concept of effortless effort. And I love that you brought in spiral dynamics. Ken Wilber is one of our upcoming authors and we have a program coming out on integral theory. So those of you who wanna go into spiral dynamics, that's something you might wanna pay attention to. Also try Googling Ken Wilbur Vishen Lakhiani. I've released around four hours of conversations with Ken and we go into states and stages, but it's a very, very, very fascinating concept. For many of you listening to this for the first time, it will blow your mind how understanding a state change and a stage change gives you a whole new perspective of looking at personal growth. But for the sake of simplicity, now I'll give you guys some homework. If you guys want to go deeper on that, search on Google for Vishen Lakhiani, Five Philosophers. In that talk, I explain states versus stages. But let's come back to states for a second, right? Because states are what you talk about in stealing fire. Because stages are harder to change. A stage is our worldview. And if our worldview is that we have to beat the other guy, that life is competitive, that we have to crush it on Wall Street or crush it in our career, what then can we do from a state perspective to get better results, but to make life easier without having the hustle wear us down? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so let's start with that. The fact of just the grind is pretty grindy. You know, an atlas wants to shrug. We feel the weight of the world in our shoulders and it's fucking heavy. So in some respects, you know, in conjunction with that, just existential angst, 
there's also the idea that since the French Enlightenment, we've been very much empirical, five senses, rational, visible world. And we've created a very strong executive function, a very strong separate, like disindividuated egoic identities. We've done all these cool things that have been the underpinning, like the psychological software underneath the scientific revolution, civil rights, nation states, free market, you know, capitalism, the whole bit. And there's no off switch. So if our on state is 21st century normal these days, you know, like tired, wired, stressed, prefrontal cortical activity, norepinephrine, cortisol, like fight flight constantly on, and we don't have other modes to shift into, then we just fry our nervous systems. And that's what's happening with social media and all these things. We're just stuck in dopamine loops and hypervigilance, and we just never have an off switch, even on planes, even in places that used to be sacrosanct and used to be built in natural recovery places, even bed for Christ's sake. We're not even having sex anymore. We're still on our screens, like, and that is the actual statistical correlation. So the ability to have a, an altered or non-ordinary state in the midst of all that, to actually like take that rusty, frozen shut radio dial of our consciousness and just change the channel and actually be tuning into different information feeds, different perspectives and different neurophysiological states in our brain waves and our heart and our endocrine system and you know the whole kind of stack of those things, that's deeply rejuvenating. It's like when your, you know, laptop's been open with too many windows for too long. In fact, just this morning, I couldn't get on a Facebook live because my camera wasn't working. Why? Because my laptop's been open all Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's like your Chrome browser slowing down because you have multiple tabs open. 100%. So non-ordinary states, particularly peak states that have some kind of kind of ecstatic tension build release, you know, almost like the sneeze or the orgasm kind of cycle. Any of those have the chance to just be a cold reboot to our buggy systems. Now, here's where I want to get a little bit into definition. What do you mean by different states? I wonder if your philosophy and my philosophy here are different or if there's a similarity. When I talk about accessing different states to get into better levels of productivity, I talk about, for example, going into waking theta level to tap into inspiration. Now, this is stuff that I learned from Dave Asprey because I trained with Dave at 40 years of Zen, right? So we train on waking theta, waking delta. So it's more being able to access certain brainwave states. But I think you're talking about something quite different. Well, I'm 100% talking about those two. It just depends on what we label them, by which biometric do we identify them. And then also, what are the mechanisms of action to get us there more often than not? So brainwaves are a relatively straightforward way. Obviously, the more you get into the deep neuroscience of it, the less clean and easy it gets and different parts of the brain are firing off with different EEG signatures, et cetera, et cetera. And a brainwave state does not a realm of consciousness make and, you know, all those kind of caveats. But the only addition I would make to that is back to that idea of like, I think it was Galileo, went into the watchmaker shop, right? And noticed that all the clocks on the wall were swinging, the pendulums were swinging the same rhythm and then tracked it down further and realized that all the littler clocks actually synchronized to the biggest clock. So the biggest pendulum would create a wave frequency, and then over time, all of them would swing into synchrony with it. So you're like, okay, so now in the game of biohacking, the question becomes is which is the biggest pendulum, right? Because there's a cascade, there's a neurophysiological signature of those states. It's not just theta. When you're in theta, a bunch of other things tend to happen. Now the question is, is which begets which? 
And if you can find out what's the longer pendulum is, then we have a very efficient, high leverage way to create state desired state change. And my sense is that brainwaves for sure are, and you can do it that way, you know, and that's the narrow feedback 40 years of Zen approach. You can also go with cardiac coherence. So what is your heart doing? And then if you're in a highly coherent state, what are the typical correlates in your endocrine system, your neuroelectric system, your neuroanatomy, firing sequences, blah, blah, blah. You could also do vagal nerve tone. And if you really wanted, like my current inquiry, like I'm pretty sure that there's a hidden treasure chest in the neck of the woods of high vagal nerve tone, high cardiac coherence, the endocannabinoid system activated, and waking state delta. And basically, once you do that all together, you're into the strongest non-ordinary states bar none, like including the tryptamine family of, of entheogens, you're actually able to precipitate. And now we're into kind of the realms of what was high esoterica in the field of Western magic and, you know, and other yogic traditions. Let's talk about that for a moment. You said high waking state delta, because that's something I actually train on with Dave. When I had my brain analyzed, they told me that I was in that 1% that naturally goes to waking delta. But what have you noticed about waking delta in your study of this? See, it feels like backdoor lucid dreaming. It's the absolute cheat codes to the fucking universe. I mean, literally the pattern recognition and the information density, clarity, and coherence is second to none. So basically, if you find yourself in waking delta, okay, with the caveat that when I say that, I mean actually an entire stack of hedonic yoga that gets you to waking delta. I do not know if the other elements are also substantial or critical to the overall experience we've been having. But what I can say is that it's basically the equivalent of getting lobbed up into the interstellar information lattice, and you can think anything you fucking want about anything you want with a 300 IQ for as long as your hang time. And this is why it's a massive competitive advantage. And this is one of the things that people are not talking about when they talk about hustle, right? So I want to share with the listeners what happened to me. So I was in 40 years of Zen in the chamber. This is Dave Asprey's facility. My brain was being monitored and I was like climbing and waking Delta, but the feeling, it was so lucid. I felt completely awake, completely awake, but I felt as if I was being programmed. I would see a vision of something I had to do in the world. And all of a sudden, I would feel so convinced, so sure that that vision was going to be real, that it was going to happen. It was as if someone was programming my brain and telling me exactly what I needed to write, exactly what I needed to do. And it was coming with this intense confidence that this was going to happen as if it was already so. And when I stepped out of it, it was this unimaginable sense of like well-being, protection, safety, but clarity in why I'm here. And, you know, I'm not a religious person, but it almost made you feel as if there was a higher power commanding you why you're here, what you have to do and why your soul entered this body. Have you ever experienced that? No, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. And I'll deny it till the end. But yeah, it really is. I mean, literally, that's, I'm building my entire next book around this. It's just going to be an elaborate game of smoke and mirrors, anthropology, neuroscience, and storytelling to smuggle that shit into the mainstream. <laughs> I love that you just said smuggle that shit into the mainstream. These are things we are both trying to do. If you listen carefully to this conversation, you will decode a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that we can't say without being called crazy. Easter eggs, brothers and sisters, abound, yeah. Okay, so since we're already going in this direction, can I ask you something else? In my conversation with Tom Bilyeu, right, one of the examples I gave is that, yes, there is the hustle, hustle, hustle mentality, but there's also this incredible book called The Surrender Experiment. I just got it. It just came to my house. I haven't read it yet. It's a brilliant book. That book created a profound shift in how I 
approach work. So if you haven't read the book, we won't go too much into detail, but I did want to ask you this question in the book. The authorist Michael Singer, who wrote The Unfettered Soul, which was a New York Times bestseller. Michael Singer spoke about building a billion-dollar software company, but doing it while spending a large chunk of his days in pure meditation and peace in a forest, just sitting on a platform, meditating. And he called it the surrender experiment. And he felt that there's an alternative to the hard push approach to extreme success. What are your views? What do you think is going on there? Well, first of all, back to the developmental ideas, right? My sense is that Tom, Gary Vee, Jordan Peterson even, right, are all speaking into necessary and essential developmental stages and they're sensing, either reflected through their own life and path and or sensing the zeitgeist, they're like, you know, a bunch of gutless, 20-something video game streaming porn addicted boys need to be told lovingly to sack the fuck up, right, and keep going. Amen, God bless you, that is needed, you know? And then there's something on the other end of that spectrum, like the surrender experiment. And you're like, okay, if someone can stay in a very specific high frequency, are they able to then shift the field of cause and effect around them? And if so, how much? And if it's enough, does it then warrant doubling down on staying in the most coherent state possible? Which is really kind of that point we made in Stealing Fire with that, the example of the America's Cup votes. Like if you can get up on a hydrofoil and your performance goes through the roof when you are up on a foil, then when you're not on a foil, what should you do? You know, should you break out the canoe paddles and start like row, row, rowing your boat? Or should you do anything and everything to get your asses back up on those hydrofoils? where you've unlocked, you know, a 10x performance bump. And so that's kind of where we get into the realms of Jedi versus the secret, right? I mean, on the one hand, like the secret wasn't wrong. It was just simplistic. And there was no differentiation between egoic desires. I want the big house and the nice car and the whatever and selfless desires. So, you know, Alistair Crowley, right? The notorious Western mage, right? He famously or infamously said, do what thou wilt that shall be the whole of the law. And at harm none, do what thou wilt. But the thou wasn't, I get to do what I want. It was do what thou, highest I, right? Selfless self wants, which is the same as surrendered leadership. So there's lots of things barking up this tree of what the surrender experiment unpacks. And I like what you said. It's about stages, right? So Gary Vee, I have so much respect for him. And he's doing a really, really, really important role in the world today. But he's speaking to a particular developmental stage. Like you said, he's speaking to the guys who need to get off those damn computer games and actually start hustling. He's speaking to people primarily at the blue or orange level of spiral dynamics. But Gary is profound. So much respect for him. I just shared the stage with him and he dropped wisdom bombs that were evolutionary, literally evolutionary. And he's very bold. When I just saw him speak, he spoke about how 99% of startups are going to fail and that people have to understand that entrepreneur is a bullshit term and that you can be just as influential being number two or number seven or number five in a company that's doing great work. So profound guys, so much respect. Now, Tom Bilyeu is also really interesting. He's the king of hustle. But what I realized about Tom, when Tom spoke at AFES, he spoke about this interesting idea called thinkitation. He said 80% of his ideas come to him during meditation. 80% of his ideas, right? Now let's go to that. What do you think is happening to Tom's mind when he thinkitates? And I love that word. That's why I keep dropping it, thinkitates. How is this guy who's built a billion dollar company getting 80% of his ideas while sitting still in meditation? What's going on there? Well, I mean, that was pretty much the thesis of Stealing Fire. It's like, hey, everybody who's kicking ass these days is actually secretly running a different software program, 
and they are absolutely using non-ordinary states of consciousness as their competitive advantage to reshape the world. You know, and the idea that that is undercover, virtually no one speaks of it. And yet the more you know about all these varying folks in varying disciplines and industries, they're all, you know, neck deep in it. So, you know, in some respects, Stealing Fire was just outing the ecstatics and saying, hey, guys, <laughs> we're on to you. And like, it's all of us. Let's do this. Let's turn it up. So can I ask you a question? Since publishing Stealing Fire, what other research or fascinating studies on flow or altered states have you stumbled upon that you wish you could put in that book? Huh. Well, that's interesting. I mean, my sense is, is that it's the stuff I'm building my next book around, which is basically what we just described, which is the role of, I mean, for starters, nitrous oxide to come back to waking state delta. MIT anesthesiologists just discovered a couple of years ago that not only does nitrous oxide produce norepinephrine, dopamine, and endorphins, so you're already like halfway to your hat trick of a flow state, but you know, mix in cannabis, you have your endocannabinoid system switched on, so that's you're now four-sixths of the way. Interesting side note, nitrous oxide leaves people in a state of waking delta for three to 15 minutes afterwards. So it's basically like galactic shavasana. So no one knows how to do it. No one has the breathing protocols down, but they're completely hackable. So that plus vagal nerve tone, basically throat and colon are two of your strongest ways to address vagal nerve tone and cardiac coherence plus endocannabinoid system. Like I think that is the underexplored sweet spot of incredibly rich and useful non-ordinary state research. Okay, let's just break that down again. Could you go one by one? And I just have questions on them. When you talk about cardiac coherence, is this similar to heart map? Yeah, so for sure. I mean, basically, you know, your heart wave or heart rhythm is either in an anabolic state, right? Meaning that it's, you know, basically pro-life and generative, or it's in a catabolic state where you're kind of eating yourself alive. And a coherent state is basically the optimized state for heart rate variability. So yes, I mean, the short answer is that the folks at HeartMath have articulated a lot of this nomenclature and language. It's, you know, close but not fully integrated into kind of mainstream consensus and research, but it's pretty far along. Got it. So that's one. And just want to share with the listeners. So a very, very, very simple way to get into heart coherence is when you're meditating, get into a compassionate state by bringing to mind the face or the image of someone that you truly love, your son, your daughter, your spouse. And this is a heart map technique. I did some work with the heart map Institute once we published one of their programs. And by the way, those of you who do my six phase meditation note that this is exactly how we start six phase. Now, you know, the truth it's coming from heart map and it's designed for heart rate variability. Beautiful. And just to add another quick thing on that, the idea of what you reflect on. So compassion and love for a family member, those are really solid and usually pretty easily accessed for other populations. Let's say first responders who are trying to deal with trauma or military veterans, you know, who might be really kind of tough on the outside. They have also found that any basically valorizing emotion. So it could be think of honor, think of duty, think of courage, right? Those ones can also access it. So if you're dealing with like, you know, grumpy relatives at Thanksgiving and you're going to get like, you know, mocked off the out of the table, if you talk about think of loving kindness, right? You can calibrate back to developmental stages and cultural settings. You can calibrate to one that's going to vibe for them and it won't throw them off the scent. So that's just another neat thing. And when you're in high cardiac coherence, back to this pendulum idea, it tends to correlate quite strongly with high vagal nerve tone. So you're like, oh, awesome, because the vagus nerve goes from our brain through our heart all the way down to our root. And it is literally the vagal nerve and the endocannabinoid system are really the two most unsung heroes. Okay, let's talk about vagal nerve. 
What is that? Yeah, so it is the wandering nerve, and it goes from brain all the way through our heart, all the way to our root. It branches, it controls everything from inflammation to blood pressure to a respiratory rate to cardiac. And it has a cascade. It's almost like the thermostat of our biological self system. And people are only just getting into figuring it out now. There's some research at UNC Chapel Hill. On, in fact, they're doing loving kindness. So to your point about the meditative protocols, they're using literally nothing invasive, just loving kindness, mindfulness to stimulate heightened vagal nerve tone. There are other ones, there are other startup companies, I think they're on their way through FDA approval right now on basically technoceuticals. So imagine like a little mini pacemaker put kind of just under your collarbone that impacts one of the branches of the vagal nerve. So people with Crohn's disease, chronic inflammatory systems, a whole bunch of other ailments can be down-regulated. So it's basically like, just like it slows down. So effectively kind of inflammatory or excitatory responses in the system. And then is also activated via the throat. So any kind of gagging, coughing, choking, even gargling can increase vagal nerve tone and also through the colon. So that's where, you know, Anish Sheth at Princeton wrote about pooforia, <laughs> you know, basically the ecstatic experience and the drop in blood pressure and the goosebumps and the tingly feeling from taking a big dump, right? And that is a pressure on the bottom of the vagal nerve. So you're like, oh shit, we are totally hackable humans. And then the endocannabinoid system is basically, you know, some folks, the researchers in Israel that have really been pioneering this research call basically the secondary immune system. So the endocannabinoid system is, surprise, surprise, where cannabinoids go. So where marijuana goes into our bodies and brains. But it wildly predates human exposure to that five-leaf plant. I mean, it's 30 million years old and exists in sea sponges. Sea sponges have endocannabinoid systems. So the fact, like Michael Pollan, he perfectly said once, he said, cannabis seduced or eased men's minds to borrow their legs and so, right, because this five-leaf plant happened to have cannabinoids in it, THC and CBD, that gear perfectly into this ancient and pre-existing endocannabinoid system, it unlocked anandamide, which is our interior. Ananda means bliss. So it's the bliss molecule in our brain. Most folks think that runner's high is endorphins. It's not. It's actually anandamide. Anandamide can also come about by breathing exercises, by sex and orgasm, by fasting, by a bunch of other things that can help boost it. So when people feel really, really good, it is quite often anandamide. Most folks just think dopamine and endorphins are kind of the only two, but it's kind of the unsung hero of the feel-good suite. And so learning to stimulate it through, you know, any means necessary is a prime way to boost the neurotransmitter and basically use it as a very potent hack. Now, most people who are stoners have flatlined it. They've depleted their stores. They've depleted resiliency. They actually need to go the other direction and back off it and let the normal cycles come back. But for folks that don't interact with cannabis as a consumable in some shape or form, their anandamide is probably undertapped. I see. Now, what about microdosing on LSD? I was just talking to a friend about this, and I'm hearing that a lot of folks are having remarkable success with this. Is this also tapping into that system? Yeah, and you're singing to the choir here in the sense of, you know, discussing any of these contemporary trendy things from the level of what's the actual structural neurophysiology. Because then you're at choice. Then you don't have to just like buy what somebody's hyping. You can actually understand the mechanisms of action. Same with Wim Hof. Wim is doing a bunch of amazing stuff and he's getting people to have incredibly, you know, strong vitalizing experiences. And half of what he does has very direct mechanisms of action known and understood. And half don't. He's an intuitive on this, right? But understanding respiration 
you're like, oh shit, now we can decode it. There's oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide, varying them, changes states of consciousness up or down or sideways. Cool. Now we can be critical consumers in this marketplace. And the same thing for microdosing, right? I mean, it's the funniest thing because Stealing Fire is a book that actually makes a subtle, long argument about exactly where we are in history and exactly what needs to happen next. And most folks completely miss that point that like our only hope is to open source non-ordinary states to provide people direct access to source and information such that we can have an ongoing rebellion that can never be cut down or repressed. <laughs> you know, like that's the point of stealing fire. And most people come up, thanks so much, dude, I'm microdosing. And you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like that was the point. To understand microdosing in its current form is to understand the interactions on the serotonin system. And in the late 50s to early 60s, you know, researchers almost simultaneously started mapping psilocybin, LSD, and serotonin. Shit got shut down, the psychedelic research got shelved, we got Prozac Nation in its place. And what we're really talking about and the wild difference between Prozac and Zoloft, the kind of SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor class of antidepressants, and the psychedelic class, people are like, wait, those seem like so weirdly opposite. Prozac makes you super flat and normal, and LSD, you're tripping balls. What gives is the difference between the 5-HT1 and the 5-HT2 receptor sites. And that basically they gear into, so the 5-HT1s is the antidepressant side of things, and the HT2s is the more psychedelic effect. And so psychedelics that activate both, you get both. Mescaline apparently only does 5-HT2, in which case people talk about a rather harder come down from that because you're not getting the kind of the soft cotton woolly experience of coming down gently. So microdosing is gearing into both of those receptor sites. It's boosting it in the same way that the antidepressants do, but not necessarily triggering full bore perceptual state shifts, aka a macro dose. And you're kind of reaping some of those rewards. Now, are there long-term implications and are there trade-offs when you upregulate a certain system and downregulate others, the kind of Rob Peter Pay Paul kind of thing? And are there long-term effects we haven't yet tracked? Possibly. But I think in big picture, it is super fascinating to realize, ah, finally, we are re-entering an era where we've picked up full spectrum serotonin system research, and there's a lot to learn in that field. And so speaking of serotonin system research, what about supplements, like easy to get supplements like 5-HTP or GABA? What are your views on those? I have a pretty, somewhere between Pascal's Wager and Occam's Razor. I generally think that, you know, to get meaningfully, like credibly usefully worth the time above the placebo effect into the realm of hell yes, this definitely worked, puts you in pretty short order into the realm of schedule one, schedule two substances. And everything in between is really expensive urine. And that's not to say that these things don't work. It's not to say that they can't make a difference, but it's just to say when you're bracketing your realm of experience between like 5-MeO DMT and or a sugar pill, there's not a lot of things that really live in that in-between stage. I get what you're saying. Okay, so let's go on to your upcoming new book, Recapture the Rapture, right? And really, we were talking about stage changes. And what I like in the brief description of the book, it seems that this book is helping people move higher up in terms of their stage awareness, I guess more towards teal. Would that be correct? Well, I mean, I think the simplest is to say, hey, we as humans have been experiencing a collective collapse in meaning, you know, organized religion, all these things are tanked, diseases of despair, suicides, et cetera, are skyrocketing, like we're kind of adrift and the old institutions are no longer serving us and helping us in the way they used to. But 
we still have the same three core kind of needs that religion used to fill, like healing. We need to like patch up where we're broken because life's a bitch. Inspiration. We need to punch through to the realms of glory, glory, hallelujah, right? What you were describing on your waking Delta experiences, like those matter and they're sometimes quite helpful and generative. And we need to connect to other humans. So that's basically, you know, catharsis is the healing, ecstasis is the peak experience, and communitas is the connection, you know, in formal terms. And so what happens when we can build basically ethical cults, right? Communities of practice around repeat ecstatic practice that don't go off the rails and let us mend where we're broken, reconnect to our point and purpose, and find our brothers and sisters to go do what's next. So if Stealing Fire was kind of the roadmap as to here's the world of non-ordinary states and how you, dear reader, might find some more, recapture the rapture is what happens when we put that into gear, into culture, and how do we build forwards from here with a minimum of repeating old mistakes? At least let's make some new ones. So let's go a little bit deeper. Like what are some of the things you're exploring in Recapture the Rapture? Well, I'm kind of on the other side of the psychedelic renaissance. I'm working on the assumption that in the next three to five years, the you know Gartner hype cycle will come and go, that a lot of the promise of it will be tempered by realities and just larger data sets and, you know, <laughs> and all those kinds of things. And that forever and always banking societal transformation on a singular substance is easily subject to prosecution and repression. And that's not tinfoil hat land. That's just history. You know, <laughs> so the more you study of it, the more you see it. Like that's the battle between the priests and the Prometheans, right? The folks looking to steal fire for humanity and the folks looking to lock it down. So the question is, is what's an open source, scalable, safe, very hard to repress version of these ecstatic techniques? And we kind of zeroed in on five of them, I think, which was if you took like IDEO, like the design firm, and you brought like a human-centered design approach to redesigning, religion as an open source platform where anybody can make their own version, you basically just say, okay, get as close to evolutionary drivers as you possibly can. So breathing, why Wim Hof stuff works. We are hardwired to breathe and breathing in different rates, shapes, and depths completely shifts our consciousness. Awesome. Sexuality, if we don't do that, we cease to be. So heavily strongly encoded, and John Lilly back in 1953 discovered in rhesus monkeys that the human ecstatic circuitry is one-to-one -one mapped on their sexual arousal network. No surprise. You know, nature's efficient. Movement and embodiment, music and substances. And if you realize that in that five becomes your recipe book for building ecstatic ritual, basically ways to knock yourself sky high, mend, get inspired and connect to others, can we basically disperse that around the world? as fast as possible so that as many people as possible can DIY wake each other up into their full humanity and get super clear on their purpose and let's all get cracking on this thing around. And that sounds amazing, but what about in terms of going beyond the individual but to becoming a more collaborative species? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. I mean, my sense is the world is going off the rails and the only solutions that will work will be coming from a global-centric perspective. And we're even doing some backsliding right now into populism and nationalism. So most people are regressing to tribalism instead of moving forwards to globalism. And it's a standby of developmental theory that you have to kind of glimpse what's beyond the thing to actually truly and fully identify with the thing. So I can't be egocentric until I understand I have a mommy and she's not me. We can't be tribal centric until we know those dumb fucks across the river aren't us. Right. And we can't be global centric until we understand something of the cosmos. Right. So there's two ways to do that. We can all, you know, 
buy a ticket on Virgin Galactic or SpaceX, slow, expensive, not scalable yet, you know, and have the little blue marble experience that the Apollo astronauts transformed so many of them, or we can become psychonauts and we can have a cosmocentric experience that actually helps accelerate our movement states into stages, helps accelerate our movement up the developmental ladder to a global centric perspective where we're like, this is us, all of us, there are no boundaries. And that's definitely something that I know people start to experience when they practice methods like meditation. Yeah. But here's another idea. What do you think of an idea of, say, an Earth flag? What if there was a flag for planet Earth? What if people could see that, you know, you're 50% American, but you're also 50% part of Earth? Do you think a cultural project like that, some sort of icon that expands one's awareness of who they really are, might work to help us get there? Well, I mean, that would be a hell of an interesting, like, mimetic marketing campaign. That's exactly it. Mimetic marketing if it could be done in such a way that somehow part of the meme, like Harlem Shuffle style, right, was an enactment that actually gave people even a contact high glimpse of that thing, of moving beyond boundaries, then potentially, you know, I mean, think about the brands. I mean, I'd like to buy the world of Coke for Christ's sake, right? I mean, brands have done it, you know, so humans should be able to. But that said, it's a tall order. It is. It is. So guess what my next project is after Mind Valley. Right now I'm working on an earth flag. It is a massive, massive, massive undertaking, but a lot of really powerful conversations are happening. And I believe that we will see an earth flag within the next decade and that we will be planting it on the moon. Get down. That's very meta. Like we travel all the way up there to plant a picture of a flag there. <laughs> but you see, you got to make it dramatic, right? I want a kid in Afghanistan, a kid in Mexico, a kid in Australia, a kid in the US being able to look up at that robot landing on the moon, planting an earth flag and go, that's me. I belong to that, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the little blue marble experience and basically the homegrown humans, the idea that, hey, all this spiritual searching and questing and trying to get away from ourselves or out of ourselves ultimately like has to come full circle. You know, that we are eternity and starlight dressed up as matter is table stakes once you look into it even remotely thoroughly. But us, opposable thumbs, prefrontal cortexes, eight decades, that's a fucking miracle, you know, and let's make the most of it. I love that. And that's a great quote to end. We are eternity and starlight dressed up as matter. Love that. Is that you? Or did you just drop a wisdom bomb from some ancient philosopher? No, I don't know where that comes from. Well, if it came from that brain, genius. I love the way you think. I love the way your brain works. You definitely talk over most people's heads. But our audience is pretty savvy. I know they're going to get this. And guys, I've given you a ton of different talks that you can go ahead and research. Go check out the book, Stealing Fire. As I said, one of the most influential books I've read in the past couple of years. And if you check out our blog on this podcast, I'm also going to list a grand total of seven articles that Jamie wrote in the New York Times, TEDx, Inc., Forbes, so that you can get a better sense of this man's brain. Thanks, Jamie. This was a great call. Yeah, dude. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health? 
your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.